0: I want to encourage you to open up your Bible. If you do not have a Bible in your hands, um, you can grab one from the table at the back. There are some church Bibles there. If you don't own a Bible, you're also welcome to take one of those home with you um, as a gift from us. Uh, We don't want you to feel in any way uh, guilty or hesitant to do that. Um, it's our gift to you. We would love people to have the Bible in their possession and to begin to read it. I'd encourage you to start with the Gospels. If you've not read the Bible before, start with these stories about Jesus. They're called Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Um, And you can find those if you look in the index. I'd encourage you to read those. So do take one home with you if you don't already own a Bible. We're going to go into Psalm 107, page 852 in the Brown Bibles. I'm going to read to you the first three verses, and then we'll jump down to verse 17. I'll give thanks to the Lord, for He is good. For His steadfast love endures forever. Let the redeemed of the Lord say so, whom He has redeemed from trouble, and gathered in from the lands, from the east and from the west, from the north and from the south, 17, some were fools through their sinful ways. Because of their iniquities, suffered affliction. They loathed any kind of food. They drew near to the gates of death. Then they cried to the Lord in their trouble, and he delivered them from their distress. He sent out his word and healed them and delivered them from their destruction. Let them thank the Lord for his steadfast love, for his wondrous works to the children of man. And let them offer sacrifices of thanksgiving and tell of his deeds and songs of joy. As you know, if you've been tracking with us in this series through the psalm, the psalm paints uh, various pictures of what your life can become like when you are straying from God or never have not known God or have been a Christian, but have walked away from God for whatever reason. is. Many of us have done at some point in our lives, or even repeatedly for some. And he describes the kinds of things that can happen in your life which might provoke you, wake you up, actually. He talks about the the experience of the wilderness, the picture of being in a kind of spiritual desert where you feel like you don't have... um, where you are are withering and dying under the heat of, of life. He talks about the experience of being in prison and the idea particularly that um, your sins, the, the things which you know displease God, um, that when you give yourself over to them, they imprison you. They become, um, they become uh, bondages, as it were, chains and irons around your hands and your legs and you feel that you are now trapped in a lifestyle that you want to break free from. And uh, I think there's very few people who have, don't understand what that means in life. We all have uh, experienced Things in our lives which we wish we could be free from, but we don't know how to. And we turn to answers all over the place, and he describes that. Then he describes this third thing. they were fools through their sinful ways, he says. And he describes the, a disintegration of a person. A disintegration of their life, of their health, of their well-being, on every level, really. Um, that comes as a result of sin, that our health begins to erode, and I, I think he means partly literally, but I think he also means in a kind of symbolic sense that you, you feel that you become a sickly person in some way. Now, obviously, I'm conscious that whenever we gather, there's just a diversity in the room, and some of you will not immediately identify with any of this that, I, that we're, I'm describing to you. And maybe for a couple of reasons, for some of you, it's, it's just the fact that you don't feel That you're running from God. I'm talking particularly those of you who are not Christians, and it just seems an irrelevance to you the idea that in some way you've been running from God all your life. It doesn't describe your experience, and it'd be a bit like me saying, um, you know, or saying that in a sense I don't feel that I'm actively disobeying the government of Luxembourg. I because I just they're just irrelevant to me. Like I'm not saying Luxembourg doesn't matter. I don't think there's anyone from Luxembourg here, but I'm just saying that the gov- what the government in Luxembourg decides about whatever is an irrelevant to, irrelevance to me, because I'm not under their power and under their jurisdiction, and their laws are, you know, they're distant from me. I, I have no idea what their laws are about. And some of you think of, of God in that way. You think, well, it's not particularly that I'm running away from Him. I just never even thought of Him. But Of course, that way of thinking doesn't particularly hold water when you start to think it through, because you really only have two options. Either God isn't there. And in which case, you know, all of this is just a waste of time, and uh, or he is, and in which case there is no part of your life in existence that isn't of interest to him, because he's absolutely sovereign, because he's the Lord of everything, not just you know like Prince Charles, sort of the the figurehead of the Commonwealth and the fifty or so nations that belong to that. And, and then there are people inside and outside. No, 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 it's much bigger than that. It's absolutely everything. Every part of your existence and life is of interest to God. And of course, that, that ought to make you stop and think. It ought to surprise you. It ought to shock you a little bit if you haven't thought of it that way. That's one thing. Another, others of you may just feel that life is going well. So the image of the wilderness or of the prison or of the kind of sickly pallor, which has affected this, this person described in the verses we read, you just don't identify with it because you think, well, my life is going pretty well. And of course, I think when you're in that situation, spiritual searching is not the top of your mind. But you're here, which is interesting in itself. Nevertheless, I would just say this to you, that there are, there are things you need to know and be prepared for in life. And that even if things go well now, of course, inevitably, at some point, all of us are touched by situations that we cannot control and that can send you into a tailspin. And in fact, it seems to me that when you take the Bible as a whole, God deliberately will put you into situations like this, experiences like this at some point, in order to mercifully wake you up. And so even if you're not going through it now, you will at some point. Of course, then there are those of us who are Christians, you know immediately what I'm talking about here you know exactly what we're talking about. So I want, to, I, want to, um, I want to break this down into three sections. I want to talk to you about sin, sickness, about healing, help, and about future faith. Beginning then with this, this sickness, this sin, <clears throat> sickness. Some were fools, he says, through their sinful ways, and because of their iniquity suffered affliction. They loathed any kind of food, and they drew near to the gates of death. Jeremy, I hope you're at the ready just in case this voice gives way. The Bible is bluntly honest in the way it talks about us in our humanity. It doesn't flatter us. Of course, we live in a slightly peculiar age in which if you are interested in spirituality that causes you no offense, you can find it. There's plenty of versions out there now on the market, as it were, of kinds of spirituality which do, that never contradict you and never offend you. But then I, it kind of makes you beg the question, well, why would you bother if they don't, if they don't challenge you in any way? If you want to change, then you need, you need a religion that speaks the truth to you. And the Bible does that. And here it does it by calling you stupid, by calling us stupid. Some are fools, he says. Um, and this is, a, this, is, this is common language in the Bible, the idea of being, becoming a fool. And uh, But you've got to understand that the... The tone of the psalm, all the way through actually, is, is not one of, of judgment or of, of accusation or of harshness. It's one of compassion. Um, that there, there is stupidity that we can be involved in in our lives, which really is very sad. It's, very, it's tragic even because of the consequences, because of the self-destructive elements to things that we engage in and do. And this is where the psalm is coming from. Some are fools. They were stupid because of their sinful ways. And then look what happened to them, he says. Look, look how their lives begin to unravel. Now, I want to dig into this a little bit. And we need to understand what the Bible means by wisdom, on the one hand, and foolishness, on the other hand. In order for you to understand what God is saying to you about life that becomes foolish. Because, of course, in, in the Bible, wisdom is never just about intelligence. It, it is a small factor, you know, it says of Solomon that he was wise because he knew all these proverbs, so he'd memorized them and there was a sense in which he had an able mind. But it's actually not really about that. And and this is one of the ways in which I think our age is particularly misguided, that we do champion and prize raw computing power of people's minds above as probably the most important faculty of your existence. And we, we really reward those with great and high intelligence. But of course the thing that we overlook very easily. Is that you can be very, very clever and do the stupidest things, and of course that means that in a in biblical sense you can become a fool. Now, uh, you know that, that could be true of you. You think about some. You know, what does it take to get into the Oval Office? <laughs> Just erasing them the last few years, it takes it takes a certain amount of of, of intelligence, doesn't it? I think and giftedness and ability. Um, and yet, it's, not been, it's been known in, in the history, not just of that great country, but also of our country, that those in highest office do the stupidest things. I did not have sexual relations with that woman. Yes, you did, in the, <laughs> the Oval Office. So just being smart doesn't mean that you, you live a smart life, does it? A wise life, we could say. I remember just a story of uh, my uncle when he was looking after us once when I was, when I was probably about 13 or something like that. My uncle, I admired as one of the most gifted and intelligent men I knew. Um, he knew he could speak three languages. He, um, he, he became a taxi driver to earn extra money at the weekends and knew the, the, um, the map of, of Manchester in his mind, as well as being headmaster of a school later in life. and Just a very gifted and able person. And yet, when he looked after us, um, he put the food into the slow cooker, as mum had instructed him, the electric slow cooker, and then put the whole slow cooker into the microwave <laughs> and press press go. Of course, once the sparks started to um, erupt from this thing and realized that something had gone wrong here, badly, <laughs> badly wrong, he took the, mic- the slow cooker out of the microwave and then plunged it into the sink of water to try and, and, and fix the thing. Of course, all of this just illustrating the point that you can be very clever and do very foolish things. Now, of course, what do we mean then by... By foolishness in the biblical sense. I think it means something like this. I think it means failing to live in the light of reality beyond the immediate, beyond what you can see. Failing to live in the light of a greater reality. Or to put it in a slightly different way, you could think of it like like this. That foolishness, biblical foolishness, is an inability to take account of the bigger picture. So this applies in just everyday examples. Most of the, the, the talk of wisdom and foolishness in the Bible is about everyday life and just the normal way of conducting yourself. And it gives examples like this. Um, early in the book of Proverbs, of course, which is a book about wisdom and foolishness, it says it, it exhorts us to gather food in winter, in summer so that you have food in winter. and Be like the ant, work hard. Gather so that in the, in the lean times you have what you need. And of course, that, that's basically an image of wisdom. It's like it's taking a kind of reality. Reality is that, Life is, exists beyond today when the sun is shining and therefore to be wise is to take account of the bigger picture, the reality that's bigger than the immediate. Uh, today, of course, the equivalent is how you spend and getting yourself onto, onto Monzo so that you can budget well and make sure that you have what you need in the bank for the, wi- the rainy days. Or another example from the book of Proverbs it tells us, not in these exact words, but it tells us in its essence, marry a person of character because it lasts longer than good looks. And of course, many a people would be saved a great deal of misery if they were able to see beyond the immediate of their their feelings in this moment and the captivation, obsession with a person. And you could look beneath that surface. And of course, it's just basic wisdom, but it, how quickly we become fools in the heat of the moment, right? Um, taking account of the bigger picture, taking account of reality, or... An example that might strike you as relevant, don't drink that next beer because you have a presentation tomorrow. You know that moment where you're sat there thinking, I'll be okay, will <laughs> be fine. And of course it was a bad mistake. You oversleep or whatever you do, and you think that was foolishness. Or example in my case, um, years ago I wanted, to buy a, I wanted to buy a really good camera. I wanted to get a, a, a Nikon digital SLR camera. And um, I, I went on the Amazon website to do the price comparison things. And then there was just this, I think, I can't remember how much this thing was. I think it was five or 600 pounds. how oh, could the pastor spend that kind of money? I was, um, and uh, it was an expensive camera. And um, we, I looked and there was this, this one freak offering, of 250 quid. And I thought to myself, wow, that is a bargain. And I immediately bought the thing. And of course, it never showed up at my front door. So I appealed to Amazon and, you know, they're very good. And then a couple of weeks later, I did it again. <laughs> now that is the definition of a fool, isn't it? That <laughs> not only did I do it the first time, fail to take account of the bigger picture and reality that there are, there are scoundrels in the world um, who want to take your money, but I did it twice. And um, yeah, th- this, is, this is the way we live, isn't it? Now, what, is, what does all this have to do with God and sin and all those things? And I think it's, it's very simple, really. When you think about it, there is no greater reality or no bigger picture than God himself. So to live a wise life is to take into account the will of God, the reality of God. It's to understand that reality, which is beyond just what you can see, feel, and touch. He is the biggest picture, you can put it like that. A wise life, then, is one, by definition, that's lived before the reality of the God who is there. And foolishness, its opposite, is to fail to take into account the reality of God. It means, you know, the way, think about the normal ways that we, we measure the quality of the rightness of a decision. We think in terms of time, and we think in terms of gains and losses. Time is, well, will this decision bear out to be a right one over time? And gains and losses is, will, will it end in greater gain over loss? Of course, when you think about the reality of God through those lenses, you realize, of course, that with God, the bigger picture in time is that he's eternal and that we're going to live and and our, our decisions are going to be accountable to him for eternity. And, of course, gains and losses is that he's the ultimate arbiter of reward and loss. If we could think this way, we'd make the right decisions every single moment of the day, wouldn't we? If we could take account of that, that would be pure wisdom. That would be Christ himself, who is, who is to us wisdom and righteousness. The ability to live in the light of the reality that God is there. That is a wise life. And what it means is that if, even if, on the surface of it, every part of your life clicks into place, because you are successful in day-to-day life, and you, you seem to make the right decisions, and you... You have the right relationships and all those things, but you still fail to take account of God. The Bible says you're still a fool. I think this comes out, and there's one occasion when Jesus uses the word fool to describe someone. It's in one of his own stories. The story of the rich man. who, who is, He's a wealthy man, and his harvests have come in. And he, he looks at his, his incredible crop. And Jesus says he thought to himself, what shall I do for I have nowhere to store my crops? I've got more than I can handle. This is amazing, he says. And he says, I'll do this. I'll tear down my barns and build larger ones. He thinks to himself, I'm going to build. And this, you know, in biblical, in, sorry, in a worldly sense, this is a very smart guy. Not only is he successful in agriculture, but he also knows how to, to, how to manage his success. Unlike so many of us. So through the world's eyes, the definition of a wise man, but through Christ's eyes, he says, as he, as he rests, he says, soul, you have ample goods laid up for, for many years. Relax, eat, drink, be merry. This is God said to him, fool, this night your soul is required of you. And the things you have prepared, whose will they be? So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich towards God. Which means that just a very earthly assessment of his life, he's a wise man. But he failed in this one area, the all-important area. He did not live before God, before the reality of God. And so he became a fool. And friend, I think this is the message of the psalm. It's saying that sin is always foolish. To go against the will of God in your life is always a foolish decision. In the book of Proverbs... Wisdom and folly are depicted as two women the wise woman, the foolish woman, or women who are kind of, who pull you in different directions. And it says about folly, it says, The woman folly is loud, she's seductive, and knows nothing. She sits at the door of her house, she takes a seat on the highest places of the town, calling to those who pass by, who are going straight on their way Whoever is simple, let him turn in here. And to him who lacks sense, she says, Stolen water is sweet, and bread eaten in secret is pleasant. But he does not know that the dead are there, that her guests are in the depths of the grave. And really, what the book of Proverbs is painting for us is a picture of every decision we make that is foolish. Because a foolish decision, a sinful decision, is one that chooses... Fleeting pleasure over lasting joy. You know, you think about how the woman talks, she says, come in here, this this bread's so sweet, the stolen bread's sweet. You choose fleeting pleasure, immediate gratification over long-term joy. That's what we do every time we sin. It's foolish, isn't it? Another way of putting it is you you choose indulgence leading to a guilty and troubled conscience, harassed conscience over peace of mind and peace with God that calm and that confidence that comes when you know that you're in the will of God. It's foolishness. Or another way of putting it is this, that you, you choose self-destructive cycles instead of hope. Because when we choose sin, we become less hopeful, don't we? We become more hopeless. We feel caught, we feel trapped. And this is what, this is what the psalmist is speaking into when he says, some became fools through their sinful ways the sickness begins to set into their bones. It says they suffered affliction. Because as you and I know, when you make bad choices in life that displease God, you start to suffer in, in ways in the external aspects of your life. Your relationships are damaged and, and, and things go wrong. Or internally, absolutely, we suffer, don't we? We suffer the affliction and torment of the mind that knows that you are displeasing to God in, in, in your ways. He says also that they loathed any kind of food. Did you notice that when we read the psalm? What was he saying? I think he's saying something like this, that when your life is given over to indulgence that you know is wrong, and you have no self-control, no limiter on the things that you, you enjoy and, and partake of, you think, well, sex, wonderful, I jump in. Greed, wonderful, I jump in. Whatever it is, you jump in. Eventually, those things become bitter to you, and you start to loathe the pleasures of life. Because the very thing that brought you pleasure also brought you sickness. You become jaded and cynical. And you, can, you lose your innocence. You know how children can enjoy the most simple pleasures in life? Isn't it the case that as we lose our innocence, as our innocence is robbed, as we, as we, we start to move into a more sordid way of thinking and living, every pleasure becomes bitter. They loathed any kind of food, he says. They couldn't enjoy it. The basic delights from God. And he says, and they drew near to the gates of death. Ultimately, of course, sin destroys us completely. This is sin sickness, rooted in stupidity or foolishness that we all experience and, and show from time to time. But then he goes on to talk about this healing help. As he says, and they cried to the Lord in their trouble, and he delivered them from their distress. He sent out his word and healed them and delivered them from their destruction. Now, I want to underline something for you here. As Christians, we believe in the message that we call the gospel, which is the message of Jesus dying on the cross for our sins, that we can know forgiveness. And we emphasize the forgiveness element. And rightly so. Forgiveness is a wonderful thing. To know that God does not hold your sins against you is the best feeling in the world. But you know, the gospel doesn't stop there. It's not just that God wants to forgive you of the things that you've done wrong. There is much more to it than that. And the Bible also talks about God's desire to begin a work of healing in you. In this extraordinary passage in Isaiah 53, where Jesus is described, 700 years before it happened, described in his death on the cross and what it was about. One of the things it says about him is that he carried our sorrows and And then he says, he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. With his wounds, we are healed. And it's this picture that's being painted of the kind of paradoxical relationship. that is: The more that Jesus experienced suffering on account of your sin, the more healing flowed towards us. The blood of Christ in particular is a kind of healing agent in our lives. Well, I remember years ago I saw the film um, The Green Mile with Tom Hanks and it's a really bizarre film. I, I never quite knew what to make of the thing um, but it depicts Tom Hanks as a, a police officer on death row in America and in this prison on this death row unit there's a man this massive uh, black man called John Coffey who has been convicted of a double murder. And of course you begin as you watch the film you think well surely it was a wrong conviction and i think he never did the crime but he has this supernatural ability that he is able to to take sickness out of another person uh, tom hanks character actually has a has a, a a problem in his his urinary tract and or a swollen prostate or something delightful and um, the character this john Coffey, he He's able to heal and extract the sickness from him. But as he extracts sickness from, from people, and this dead mouse he brings back to life, and this kind of thing, it's as though the sickness afflicts him. It doesn't kill him, but it kind of, he suffers for a moment with what he is taking upon himself. And I've often thought that there was a picture there of, of what the work of Jesus was like on the cross. It's even vividly depicted in the film that it's almost like these flies come out of people's mouths as sickness travels from the sick person to the, this man, John Coffey, and it, there was—I I can't help but think that the author was even unconsciously thinking of the death of Christ and how the sicknesses of the world were pulled out of us and put unto Him on the cross, so that we could be whole, so that we could be healed. What does it mean? It means that you could have made the worst mess up of your life. Smashed things all around you and inside of you. And Jesus wants to not only set you to right, but he wants to set your circumstances to right. It's not enough just to be forgiven. He wants to set you to right. It means that if sin has broken you, robbed you, Changed you in ways that you never knew it would on the inside. Stolen your sense of dignity. Covered you with guilt and shame. Made you feel unworthy. Exposed you to the rejection of others. All these ways that we become damaged as a result of our foolish decisions. We could list many more. When Jesus comes to you, not only to forgive you, but to to cover you with his healing balm, he starts to mend you and to transform you from the inside out. He doesn't only heal you, he also starts to heal your circumstances. You think about the things that you wreck in life through your, through your foolish decisions. We can all look back on our past and think, what would have happened if I hadn't done this? What could have come of my life and of this relationship or of these... If, if I'd made the right decisions... And we look back with regrets and we look at our broken situation. We think, is there any way out from this? But what he's saying to us here in the psalm is that they cried and God delivered them and he started to heal them. He started to heal not only them, but he started to heal their circumstances. Which means, I think, something like this. Let me just use a few examples just to illustrate the kind of things I'm talking about. If the area of your life where you've been most fooled excuse me, is in your sexual conduct, Think about what it does to you over time. You experience the power of diminishing returns. You need to go for a bigger, better thrill next time. As you cross boundaries, you find it so hard not to cross them again and again. That relationships begin to be damaged by your conduct. Or never started. Because it's so hard, isn't it, to, to form healthy relationships when we become sexually permissive whether just in our imaginations or in reality. In other words, we experience something of the shattering of our lives when sexual sin takes a hold of us and we become fools. When Jesus comes to you with this healing power, to heal you in that situation is is that for the first time you can feel loved and also you can give love in a way that is pure, that's unsullied. And he'll even bring you to the point where either in his goodwill you can have the right outlet for sexual desire but even failing that maybe that becomes impossible for you in your circumstances or in God's will. You can nevertheless be satisfied for the first time because you're satisfied in Christ. That's what healing is. It's not just patching you up and forgiving you, it's actually remending and rebuilding the life that was broken. Think about what we do when we are given over to the, sin of, of pa- the sins of power, and I think particularly how the sickness is, is characterized by ambition that leads to glory hunger, that leads to overwork, that leads to stress, that leads to anger, how those sinful desires warp you as a person inside and also warp all your relationships. What does God's healing power do when he starts to mend you of your foolish ways? He brings a peace that you never knew was possible. He brings joy in the simplest of work. He brings ultimately a surrender to Jesus where you say, You're Lord, and I'm not Lord, and I don't care how high or how low you put me in this world. That's what healing is to be free of those earthly ambitions so that you can serve Christ. He wants to turn you into that kind of person. Think about the sins associated with greed and money and mammon and the sicknesses that set in where greed gets a hold of your heart selfishness, discontentment, and constant comparisons with those around you. The folly of it all is, of course, that the more you desire, the less happy you become, right? Inevitably the case. But as Christ comes towards you with his healing power and his de- deliverance, what does he do? He starts to enable you to experience freedom for the first time from the desires which have harassed you for all of your life. A contentment, even in the simple things of life and generosity where you find more pleasure in giving than you ever had in receiving. He changes you, in other words. And we could go on listing examples all day. We could all tell testimonies of God's healing power in our lives. I guess it leads to this question, does everything get healed? And I think the honest answer is is a kind of a no and a yes. In the sense that There are things that get smashed and broken and damaged by our sin which will never really be fully fixed in this life. Consequences to the wrongs we've done which we'll have to live with in a certain sense for the rest of our lives. And there's sadness to that, of course. All of us could look back and wish we could have undone some of the things we've done. But the flip side to it is that Even the worst stuff in your life can get redeemed and repurposed in the will of Jesus. There's a kind of a messed up and amazing example of this in the life of Samson. In fact, there are so many examples in the Bible that just jumped to mind that we could go on telling them. But you remember Samson, this man with supernatural strength, but with also supernatural, if you can put it that way, lust and desire for a kind of... You know, the, the sordid life he lived in terms of of his sexual conquest and how ultimately it became his downfall through the wickedness of the woman he chose in Delilah and her deception of him. And Samson's handed over to the enemies, the Philistines. His head is shorn, his eyes are gouged out, he's blind and he's weak. And in that moment you think, can any good come of, of the brokenness of Samson's life? In the possession of of these wicked, wicked Philistines who want nothing but to crush and destroy Israel. And he was supposed to be the deliverer from them. And There he is in weakness. And as they parade him as this, this trophy of their, of their strength, that they've conquered the great Samson, he asks the servant boy to put his hands on the two pillars on either side in the temple where they're all having this crazy party. And he prays a, a final prayer to God for the return of his strength. And it's as though all the wickedness of the life he'd lived up to that moment, all the false and failed decisions that he'd lead, led, that he'd that he'd made up to that point, somehow God brought all of it to a, a conclusion that was designed. As he pulls the pillars down with his strength, and he is able to defeat the Philistines there and then. You think about David sleeping with Bathsheba. It's his darkest moment. There's no question of that. This king who otherwise has an extraordinary record, it's his darkest moment when he spots that woman who was not his wife bathing on the roof. And then he brings her around to his house and he sleeps with her and she becomes pregnant. Then he arranges for a husband who's at war to make sure that he gets killed on the battlefield. And shame is added to shame. And then he buries the whole thing. And he lives with it for a year until a prophet comes and challenges him. A man of God who prophetically knows from God the wrong he's done. Because God always knows, doesn't he? He always knows the wrong we've done. And you think, can any good come of all this mess? The child that she conceived dies. I'll tell you what good comes of all this mess. Jesus. Jesus is descended from that woman, Bathsheba. She's named named in his genealogy in Matthew 1. You think, isn't this just the crazy kindness of God? That in our worst mistakes, he turns them for good. There's a verse in Joel 2 that describes how God will restore the years that the locusts have eaten. The years of famine in your life where you experienced brokenness and also the stripping of all fruitfulness in life because locusts came in. And God says, I can actually undo all of that. I can do more with you in the years that you're committed to me and surrendered to me than everything that was undone by your stupidity and foolishness before you surrendered to me. I will restore the years, the locusts of Eden. That is hope, friends, and that's what the gospel means. It brings healing help. I want to mention to you just finally this future faith. With each of these stories, you see this turning point and then this new person emerge on the back. They come out of the wilderness and they become a worshiper of God. They come out of prison They become a worshiper of God. They come out of sickness and look what happens. He says, let them thank the Lord for his steadfast love for his wondrous works to the children of man. Let them offer sacrifices of thanksgiving and tell of his deeds and songs of joy. He's describing the happiness of the saved person who's experienced the power of God to lift them out of all the things they wish they could undo and then bring them into a new life. What does God want to do with you from here on? That's the question I want you to think about. He does not want you to get forgiven, healed, and then just go straight back to the things that you did before. It's just pure futility, isn't it, when we do this? I was thinking about the experience of what it's like to clean my car. Particularly on the inside. Now that I have children... My car is perpetually in a state of absolute chaos and mess with crushed Cheerios and rotten banana skins all over the place. And if you clean it, it's almost like an invitation to the children, like a fresh carpet just to mess up again. And some ways, for some of us, that's exactly what your Christian life is like. There's this this proverb which captures it so perfectly. It says, like a dog... That returns to his vomit is a fool who repeats his folly. Now, some of you have heard that C is pregnant. Um, it's nine and a half weeks pregnant. You can give a little whoop. That's a good thing. Yeah. With um, first trimester pregnancy comes copious amounts of vomit, and at no point, at no point in seeing in seeing those productions, have I ever. Felt my appetite. <laughs> rise. You know, you think chocolate cake second time round. It just doesn't appeal in the same way. The carrots look less delicious um, than the first time. And of course, this is what the proverb is telling us that, that it's like when we sin. You know, if you, you know what it did to you last time. And yet we go back. We're like a dog. And dogs actually do this, don't they, I think. I've never owned dogs. Probably this is one of the reasons. Dogs... <laughs> Dogs literally will vomit and then go back and think, wow, dinner. And they start eating the thing again. So they said, this is what a believer is like. When your life gets forgiven, healed, bound up, then you go back to the same things again and again. Like a dog that returns to his vomit is a fool who repeats his folly. And I suppose in some senses, some Christians live like the proverbial kind of spoiled kid spends all of dad's money, smashes the Ferrari, then goes back and says, sorry, and dad buys him another one and fills up the bank account again. And there's a sense in which I think, well, yeah, kind of, because God is really, really kind, isn't he? Even when we mess up, he keeps keeps being kind to us. But there's a sense in which, you know, what it means to grow maturity in Christ is to leave your childish ways behind you. We're being formed into the image of Christ, aren't we? Not the spoiled child who wants his sin, and also wants wants God. So instead, what God wants to do in you, he wants to bring change and transformation from this point on. T.S. Lewis wrote this. He says, you can't go back and change the beginning, but you can start where you are and change the ending. For me, in a sense, that's exactly what the gospel means every morning. I can't go back and change yesterday, but I can start where I am and receive fresh grace to change the ending. Amen. To live life in the light of the fact that Christ has redeemed me and has now empowered me to live a new life. How? Well, by cooperating with the power of God at work in you. It's not enough, friend, to just pray and then do nothing. God, deliver me from this sin and then run straight back to it. Rather, we passionately pursue with every ounce of energy we have the life of wisdom as God has described it. In the book of Proverbs again, he describes the person who yearns after and searches after wisdom with every fiber of their being. He says, My son, if you receive my words, treasure up my commandments with you, making your ear attentive, listen, to wisdom, inclining your heart, bending it towards understanding. Yes, if you call out for insight, raise your voice for understanding if you seek it like silver and search for it as for hidden treasures, then you will understand the fear of the Lord and find the knowledge of God. You are never doomed to stay where you are. If your desire is to grow in Christlikeness, he will change you. But you must bend every fiber of your being towards this. Desire it above everything else. Pursue it with all the strength that he gives you. Let me ask a final question. Where do you begin? I think we begin, thinking again on this theme of wisdom and folly, I think we begin at the cross. In 1 Corinthians, Paul puts it like this. He says, Jews demand signs. They want miracle powers. And Greeks, they want wisdom. They had the philosophers. They love smart ways of thinking about life. He says, but we preach Christ crucified. A stumbling block to Jews Why? Because this greatest moment of power was being killed. And folly to Gentiles. Because they think, well, this isn't a particularly clever or sophisticated philosophy of life. Not like what Plato taught. He says, to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men. And the weakness of God is stronger than men. Paul's telling us that you can get all the wisdom you need to live a new life when you go to the cross. There you receive grace for yesterday, the wrongs that you can't undo. You receive healing for today in terms of that inner transformation of what God wants to make you. And you receive power for tomorrow so that you can live a new life. I wanted to add a final thought that came to me when we were praying through, beforehand through something that was shared. You know, the, the hardest thing that any of us can do in terms of living a life for Christ is, is that aspect of surrendering to Him because you trust Him. You know, the, the reason why we go back to foolish things is because basically there's a lack of trust. You don't really believe that God's way is better. So you think your way is better, so you keep going back to your way. And do the same things over and over again. And of course, there is a sense in which you have, to, you have to make a decision there. And perhaps everything in you wants to scream out and say, no, I'm not ready to surrender to Jesus in this part of my life. But you've got to understand, of course, only Jesus knows all, sees all. Only Jesus can make the right decisions for you. When a pilot is flying blind through cloud with no visible horizon, you know that all your senses can go completely haywire. And it's been known for pilots to end up plummeting to the ground with no awareness of the fact. And what happens is if they take their eyes off the dashboard, and particularly the gyroscope, which tells them whether the plane is level or not. As soon as you start to trust your instincts rather than the instruments, you plummet. Because your instincts lie to you. Many, many pilots have died in tragic circumstances because their instincts, everything in them, told them they were flying level. And they were actually plummeting to their death. I think therein is a picture of the person who maybe who's not a Christian, or the Christian who's making decisions which you know are wrong. The instrument, of course, is is God and His Word, what he's, what He's told us, and particularly the death of Christ on the cross, which tells us how much He loves us and how much He is for us, and therefore we can trust His will. Your instincts, however, will lie to you, and I want to encourage you, friends. With everything in me, do not suffer the consequences of your sins any longer if you can help it. But rather cast yourself onto Christ and his mercy and trust him. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that in you there is life and wisdom. And every one of us has experienced the bitterness of our stupidity. Our stupidity is doing it again. (laughs) And thinking that we can do better the next time when so often we just repeat the same things. Lord Jesus, we want to come to you and surrender. Lift off shame and bring us into a new day, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.